Hey, thanks, Jake. Good evening, church. Nice to see you. My name is Paul. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I've loved preaching through Genesis these last eight weeks, I think it is. Uh, one of my favorite sermon series as we've thought about the character of God as amongst dysfunctional people. Um, if you didn't get my email, the email this week, just to let you know, I'm on two weeks parental leave as of next Saturday. It might sound really odd because um, my wife wasn't pregnant. Uh, we've, we've just fostered a young child, a little baby of eight months old, and so we'll spend two weeks together as a family and appreciate your prayers during that time. Tonight I am covering five chapters in Genesis, and it's a cracking story, a classic rags-to-riches story. So I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's help. Um, Father, thank you for this life-giving word. Thank you, Father, that you long for us to deepen our intimacy with you, to know you better, to be shaped and refined and encouraged and built up by your word. And so we come tonight inviting you, Father, to do that transformative work in our lives. Father, we love you. I want to love you even more, so please speak powerfully through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God is with you. God never leaves you nor forsakes you. God is for you and not against you. And God is good all the time. Say that again. God is with you. God never leaves you nor forsakes you. God is for you and not against you. And God is good all the time. And those are biblical truths that are so easy to say, but they're really, really hard to live by. Those are truths of God which is so easy to quote at somebody else, especially when they are in pain. But when you yourself are in pain, they are truths about God that are really, really hard to trust. Is God always with you? Is God always good? The reality is that life is not plain sailing for any of us here. Our plans are not God's plans. Your life is not as you expected or anticipated. Uh, I love this little cartoon that's up on the screen for you. This is our plan for life. Your plan for life is a nice, easy, plain sailing kind of life. But God's plan for your life is full of twists and turns and valleys and mountains, and he takes you into places that you never expected to go through. And the question is this, is God always with you? And is God always for you? That's what we're going to grapple with tonight through the Joseph story. Uh, Craig Gashel says this, never let the presence of a storm cause you to doubt the presence of God. What if drawing closer to God and developing genuine intimacy with God requires you to bear something that feels unbearable? To hear God through an ominous utterance. To trust God in the moment of doom. To embrace God's strength when you are weak with a burden. What if it takes real pain to experience deep and abiding hope in the presence of God? And church, what if that is true? What if the way that we are to really experience the presence of God is to be taken to a point of deep despair? Someone has said that a Christian is a bit like a teabag. 
utterly useless until they've had hot water poured over them. Now, we, we sing in church all the time, don't we? Every minute, every hour, you have always been there. You are faithful and you always will be. In every triumph, every failure, you are loyal to me. And we sing it. But do you really believe that? Every minute of every hour, your God has always been with you. There was a, a single second and a single circumstances where your God was not there with you. One of my favourite books is The Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom, and she describes this encounter with God where she really experienced the presence of God in a most unusual way. It's a story where, where, where she and Betsy, her sister, were moved to a different cell, a different barrack in the concentration camp, and they opened the door, and, Bet, and, and Corrie was horrified horrified by the sight before because this, this room, this cell was swarming with fleas. And her sister Betsy said, we're called by God to give thanks in all circumstances. And so she prayed, thank you God that we are still together and thank you God we've still got your Bible and thank you God for these fleas. And Corey said, I could not thank God for these fleas. As the weeks went by, they suddenly realised it was because of those fleas that the prison guards refused to come into their cell. And because of those fleas, those women were protected from abuse and torment and violence. And because of those fleas, those women were able to read the Bible. And because of those fleas, she experienced the presence of God protecting her and holding on to her and guiding her because of those fleas. And I can stand here as your pastor and testify to you that every minute of every hour that God has always been with me. My verse for last year was Isaiah 41 verse 10. That was my personal verse for the year. Do not be afraid, for I am with you, says God. Do not be dismayed, because I am your God, and I will strengthen you, and I will help you, and I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. And boy, did I cling on to that verse last year. Do you really believe that every hour, every minute, God has always been there? Because when you do, when you, you know God's presence with you, it changes you. It changes your attitudes. That you, you know you're never alone. You know that God is in this moment and God sees you and God has not forgotten you. And that is Joseph's story. Every minute, every hour, in every triumph, every failure, God was with Joseph in the pit and in the palace. So tonight I want to read through these five chapters, really. It's a, a quarter of the book of Genesis covers this one man. It's a cracking read. Scene one I've called God's presence in the pit. God's presence in the pit. That is chapter 37. Open your Bibles. Chapter 37, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob's line, Jacob's family line. Now remember, Jacob is a messed up, dysfunctional man with a messed up, dysfunctional family. He had, he had 12 sons and one daughter from four different wives. And one of those sons is called Joseph. He's the 11th son. He's not the first son. He's the 11th son. And we're told in verse 2, he is 17 years old. He's tending the flocks with his brothers, verse 2, and he brought their father a bad report about them. And so you learn straight away that Joseph is a bit of a dibber-dobber. And no one likes dibber-dobbers. 
Verse 3, now Israel, that is God's name for Jacob. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Joseph was the favorite child. Red flag, deja vu. I presume he loved Joseph the most because Joseph was the son from Rachel, the only wife that he really loved. Anyway, verse 3, we're told that he made an ornate robe for Joseph, not a technicolor dream coat, but an ornate robe. An ornate robe was a, a sign of royalty, a princely robe, and it designated the, 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 the child of the birthright. That is bizarre because he's not the first son, he's the 11th son. And when you wear an ornate robe, you can't really do much manual labor. So you imagine Joseph swanning around in his colorful coat saying, I'm the favorite child, I'm the favorite child. And so verse 4, we're told that his brothers hated him and couldn't speak a kind word to him. Of course they did. We're told down in verse 11, his brothers were, were jealous of him. They envied him. A quick aside, envy or jealousy is horrible. When you resent somebody for what they've got that you really want, whether it's possessions or popularity or status, it eats away at you. Please get rid of jealousy. Anyway, they hated him. And they hated him even more after these incredible two dreams. See, God speaks to Joseph through dreams. And the first dream in verse 5 is about these 11 sheaves of corn that are all bowing down to this one sheath of corn. And Joseph says, I am that one sheath, and you're all going to bow down to me. I'm going to rule over you. Isn't that cool? And then the second dream is even worse, verse 9. He, he says, this time there are 11 stars, and then there's a moon, and there's a sun, and, and you brothers and mum and dad are all going to bow down to me. As you read this, you're, kind of, you're supposed to ask, was Joseph wrong to share these dreams? Was he naive? I imagine his tone was a tad braggy. But this is the word of the Lord. Sometimes God's word is provocative, and everything that Joseph said did actually happen. Anyway, in chapter 37, the, the brothers go off to a place called Shechem to tend some sheep, which is a, is a bizarre choice of a place to go. It's a, not a happy place because it was at Shechem that the brothers Simeon and Levi committed mass murder. It was at Shechem that their sister Dinah was raped. Why did they go to Shechem? And Jacob sends Joseph off there to see how they go, to check up on them, to spy on them. Come down to verse 18. When they saw, when the brothers saw Joseph in the distance, doesn't that remind you of the prodigal son? But unlike the father and the prodigal son, they're not filled with compassion. When they saw him in the distance, before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. They're filled with hatred and they want him dead. Verse 19, here comes that dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of those pits into the system and say that ferocious animals devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of these dreams of his. So that's their desire. They want to kill him. But, but Reuben, verse 21, he's the eldest brother. He is the, the rightful heir. But just so you know, he's already messed up. Back in chapter 35, Reuben slept with Bilhar, his father's concubine. But he's got a conscience. Perhaps he can't bear to wrong his father again. And, and Reuben says, let's not kill him. Let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in the pit and leave him there. That's a great place to store a prisoner. As so they take off that coat and they, 
chuck him in a pit, and it just so happens some Ishmaelites traders are coming by, and they sell their brother Joseph for 20 pieces of silver, which is the price for a handicapped slave, because that's how much they think of him. As you read chapter 37, you're supposed to ask, where's God in this? Where is God in this chapter? How is God with Joseph in this chapter? In many and varied ways. I hope you learn to see the hidden hands of God in your life. He was present in Reuben's words of protection. Let's not lay a hand on him. That was God. He was present in Judah's words. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him. That was God. He was present when the Ishmaelite traders just so happened to turn up and just so happened to go down to Egypt, which is where God promised his people would spend 400 years. I want to say, friends, sometimes God's presence is seen in the the words and the actions of the people that God places in your life, even when those people people treat you badly. So scene two, I've called God's presence in Potiphar's house. And if chapter 38 is a picture of horrible immorality of Judah, chapter 39 is about the rock-solid integrity of Joseph. It just so happened, 39 verse 1, that Joseph is bought by a man called Potiphar, who is the captain of the guard. Let's think about that. Joseph could have been a slave in a field, but in God's kindness, he's living in a wealthy household. And verse 2 is explicit. The Lord was with Joseph. There you go. God had not abandoned him. God was protecting him. God was providing for him. God was guarding him and watching him behind all things, in all things, over all things. And and now we know that. We're told that. But we're supposed to ask, did did Joseph know that? Did did Joseph know that God was with him? And the answer is, of course he did. How do you know that? Because of his attitude. As you read these chapters, Joseph never, ever says, why me, God? Woe is me, God. I don't deserve this, God. The attitude of Joseph is this. Okay, God. Wow. Didn't expect that, God. But let's just get on with it. Okay, God, I'm now a slave. Well, I'll be the best slave I possibly can be. I'll be diligent and loyal and hardworking. And that is the mark of somebody who knows that God is always with them. No moaning, No whinging, no complaining, no woe is me. It's, uh, uh, oh, wow, God, didn't expect that, but let's get on with it. Let's live such good lives among the pagans that they see your good deeds and and they praise God. And Potiphar saw the Lord was with him, verse 3. When his master saw that the Lord was with Joseph, present with him, and he sees that by the success that he has. And we're told that Joseph led a blessed life. In this household. I love that. There's no better way to live than living in the presence of God under the blessing of God. But living a blessed life does not mean living an easy life. Living a blessed life doesn't mean a life of prosperity or a life of popularity, because here's a biblical truth that we don't like to hear. When we live in a way that is full on for God, when we live in a way where we're in God's presence and we're seeking to honor Him and to serve Him, don't be surprised. When the devil turns up. My wife often says to me that when we are under spiritual attack, that's a good thing because it means we're living full on for Jesus. When you're living a life of integrity, full on for Jesus, don't be surprised when the devil turns up. 
And he does not turn up and say, oh, how marvellous. Good on you, Joseph, for living an upright life. He's looking for a way to bring him down. He's trying to find his Achilles heel. And Joseph has passed the bitterness test. He's passed the discouragement test. Now it is a sexual temptation test. We're told in verse 6 of 39 that Joseph was well-built and handsome. Literally, he was a good-looking hunk of a man. And Mrs. Potiphar, she notices him. She's impressed with Joseph, not because of his work, but because of his body. And she's far from subtle in verse 7. Come to bed with me, she says. And again, we're not told why. Was Potiphar too busy to have sex with his wife? Was Potiphar perhaps a eunuch? Or was it just pure lust on her part? The key thing is verse 8. He said, no. No, 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 no. He refused. And verses 8 and 9 give us two reasons why we shouldn't say no to sin. Two reasons why you must say no to temptation. The first one was loyalty to people. Loyalty to the people around you. Joseph basically says, I will not be disloyal to my master. I will not betray my master. You are his wife and I will not touch you. I want to say, friends, that that is a great reason for godliness. Before you sin, before you choose to sin, think about the people that you will hurt. Before you choose to sin, think about your spouse if you are married, or your kids if you've got kids, or your friends, or your church, or your family. Think about all the people that you're going to hurt by the choices you're about to make in doing something wrong. But here's the main reason he chooses not to sin. Verse 9, his loyalty to God. He says in verse 9, How then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Because that's what knowing God's presence does. He knows that God is with him. He knows that God sees. So this is not a sin against Potiphar and his wife. This is a sin against God. And when you know God's presence with you, no one else might see you sinning, but God does. And you might think you've got away with it, but God sees. And in my experience, that is the greatest motivation for holiness. And the greatest deterrent against sin is to live in the presence of God and to know that God always sees and God always hears and God knows everything and nothing is hidden from God's sight. So please keep fighting your temptations. It's what Joseph does. Verse 10, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day after day, come to bed with me, come to bed with me, come to bed with me, he refused to go to bed with her. If my maths are right, he's probably in this household for 10 years. 10 years of temptation. And he flees it. And that's what the presence of God does, you know. It empowers you to say no to temptation. Because God gives you eyes to see and ears to hear, so choose to use them wisely. When I moved to Sydney 21 years ago, my initial reaction was, wow, Sydney's a beautiful, beautiful city. And then I realised it's full of temptations. Let me tell you, you don't get scantily clad women wandering around the streets of London in midwinter. <laughs> but you go to the beach and you're like, where do I look? And you walk down Military Road thinking, where do I look? And this city is full of depravity and it's 
full of pollution and filth, but we've just become normalized to it and we've sanitized ourselves. We need to learn to close our eyes and to close our ears and to honor God. Your integrity, your impurity will be driven by the presence of God. If you want to fight your sin, know that God sees everything. But look again at verse 10. He refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. So so Joseph did not say, sorry, I won't sleep with you, but let's grab a coffee together. Sorry, I won't sleep with you, but let's just hang out together. He fled. He had nothing to do with her. He would not be alone with her. And I wonder how many acts of immorality have happened because people did not flee. They flirted. They put themselves in temptation's way, and God says, flee, have nothing to do with them. Cut them off. Anyway, the trap's set in verse 11. One day... Joseph turns up for work and none of the household servants are inside. And this is her moment. She throws herself at Joseph. She catches his garment. Joseph loses his cloak, but that's way better better than loses his integrity. And then this spurned woman kicks into retaliation and revenge mode. She, She plays the victim. She concocts a story. She makes false allegations. And basically she says... Joseph tried to rape me. He forced himself on me, and I screamed, and I ran away. It's it's one big fat whopping lie. When when she tells it to her husband in verse 19, I find Potiphar's response interesting. Uh, When Potiphar heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Now, who is he angry with? Joseph or his wife? And we think it's Joseph, but I wonder whether it's his wife. I think Potiphar knows her games, knows her character, because he knows Joseph. Joseph has been there for 10 years. He's been a man of integrity and loyalty and faithfulness. And if Potiphar really believed that Joseph tried to sleep with his wife, the punishment would be death. And Potiphar has the power and authority to put him to death. But instead, he just puts him in prison. And so here you've got Joseph, who's done nothing wrong, stuck in jail. But what are we told down in verse 21? While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him, God was with him, and he had to believe that. I went to jail, but God was with me. I wonder whether you said that in life, my my spouse walked out on me, but but God was still with me. I lost all my savings, but, but God was still with me. I was diagnosed with cancer, but God was still with me. My friend betrayed me, but but God was still with me. The Lord was with Joseph, not just in the pleasant times, but in the painful times. Not just when life was good and faith was strong, but when life sucks. God is still there. Do you believe that? Scene three, I've called God's presence in the prison. From the pit to Potiphar's house, to prison. And when you know that God is with you, it changes you. We're told in 39 verse 21 that God showed kindness and granted Joseph favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put him in charge of all those held in prison. So he goes from being in charge of a house to being in charge of a prison because the Lord was with Joseph. And what I love is that Joseph never compromises his character. 
Life may have been hard. May, life may not have turned out the way he expected. He was wrongly accused. There was a miscarriage of justice. But Joseph does not mope around miserably saying, oh, life's not fair. Why me? This place is terrible. My life sucks. Can't believe I'm here. His attitude is, wow, God, okay, God. <laughs> that wasn't my plan. But I guess, God, you want me here in prison because if I believe you're in this, then that's where I am. I don't like this God. I wouldn't choose this God. But okay, God, let me honor you in the, in the prison. And that's the attitude of someone who knows God's presence. Knows that God is doing something, doesn't know what. But they'd be the best prisoner for the Lord. Never underestimate the witness you have when the way that you respond to situations shows to a watching world that you really believe that God's in this. Anyway, in chapter 40, God brings two men into the same cell. One is a cupbearer, one is a, a chief baker. We know what a baker is, but a cupbearer is not a butler. A cupbearer is, is somebody who would make sure the food and the wine was not poisoned, like a, like a chief security guard. And Pharaoh throws these two men in jail, and they just so happen to end up in cell block Joseph. And God is at work for good there, bringing people to their life who might just get him out of jail. Uh, Joseph doesn't know this yet. And often we don't know. God brings people across your path where he's going to use them in his plan for your life, but you don't know quite how yet. It's a lot back on my life, God's presence through people that he brought into my path I'd never met before with a word or word of prophecy, word of encouragement. That was the kindness of God. Anyway, the baker and the cupbearer both have dreams. Here we go again, dreams upon dreams upon dreams because God can speak through dreams. One of my favorite verses is actually verse 6 of chapter 40. It's a very strange verse. But when Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. I love that. Because when I'm in a dark place, I tend not to see other people's problems. When I'm in a dark place, I don't notice when other people are sad because I'm so self-consumed by me, myself, and I, and my woes, and my woes. Here's a tip. When you stop dwelling on self and your problems and look at others and what they're going through, it will change you. Anyway, verse 7, he says, why do you look so sad today? Oh, we both had dreams, I said, and there's no one to interpret them. Oh, yes, there is. Then Joseph said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Isn't that an odd verse? God is the one who interprets dreams. So tell me your dreams. And what he's saying is, God is with me. So I will interpret your dreams on God's behalf. God will speak through me. And so the cupbearer goes first. It's a really weird dream about a vine and three branches. And it's a really positive interpretation. And, and Joseph says, it's a great dream. In three days' time, you're going to be restored to the palace. And then he adds this, 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 uh, this sentence in verse 14. Just remember me. Just remember me when you're released from jail. And the baker's overhearing this and thinks, oh, that sounds wonderful. Great interpretation. Here's my dream, Joseph. I, I dreamt I had three baskets on my head with birds eating out of it. But that wasn't a pleasant dream. That was a nightmare because the interpretation is in three days' time, Pharaoh's going to chop off his head. And they both come true. The baker's killed. The cupbearer is released. 
But come to the last verse of that chapter, 40 verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. 41 verse 1, when two full years had passed. Joseph spends two more years in prison. He he goes from the high of of interpreting God's dreams, of being the, the voice person for God. He's thinking, wow, this is amazing. And then he's stuck in prison for two more years. That does not seem particularly fair, does it? And I've learned this in life, friends, that lots of things that happen to you are not fair. Certain things will happen to you in life that should not happen to you. And you can't control those things. But you can control your response to those things. You can't control the things that happen to you, but you can control the way that you respond to the things that happen to you. The great preacher William Sangster was diagnosed with a muscular disease, a bit like motor neurodisease, and he was told that all his muscles would waste away and eventually his voice would give way. He would no longer be able to speak. As a preacher of God's word, to be told that you would no longer be able to speak, that is devastating. Now, how did he respond to that tragedy? He vowed three things. Number one, he vowed that he would never complain and say, poor me. Number two, he vowed he would count his blessings every day and and name one good thing of that day. And number three, he would turn this into something amazing. He could no longer speak, but he could write. And he wrote hundreds of books that were used by God. So what was God doing for those two years? Why did he leave Joseph in prison for two long years? We don't know. I personally think he was shaping Joseph's character. He was refining his character, preparing Joseph for the next chapter of life. Because I think the greatest temptation for Joseph was not sexual temptation. The greatest temptation for Joseph was, was pride was pride, because here's a man who's gone from a 17-year-old boy to be in charge of a house, in charge of a prison. He's about to become prime minister of Egypt. And when you've gone from adversity to prosperity, your greatest temptation is pride. And maybe God was using those two years to strip Joseph of all his pride so he would stop thinking he's a somebody. And sometimes God leaves us somewhere for a period of time to keep chipping away at our character. The last scene is God's presence in the palace. And Pharaoh has two crazy dreams. The first one's about seven fat cows being eaten by seven thin cows. And the second dream is about seven uh, fat seeds of corn grain being swallowed by seven thin scorched grains. They're weird dreams, but this is God's plan. This is God's presence. He's going to use Pharaoh and his dream to bring Joseph to the palace. Because Pharaoh's bugged that no one can interpret his dreams, and suddenly the cupbearer has his memory jogged, and it it just so happened that the the cupbearer remembered, oh, that guy called Joseph who interpreted my dream. I'd forgotten about him. So verse 14 of chapter 41, Pharaoh sent for Joseph. And he was quickly brought from the dungeon where he'd spent two extra years. When he'd shaved, that's interesting, look for those details. Why did he bother to shave? Because Hebrews don't shave. Egyptians shave, but Hebrews don't. And I think he's becoming like one of them so he can have an audience with the king. Now what's Joseph going to say to Pharaoh? 
What would you say to Pharaoh? I didn't deserve this. Oh, that wretched cupbearer who forgot me. I think there'd be bitterness. I think there'd be resentment or blame. But I've learned to say, let, let God handle your wretched cupbearers and let God handle your potiphers because God can handle them better than you can. He doesn't say that. He says, all glory to God. Verse 16, I can't do this. I can't interpret your dreams, but God can. This is not about me, Pharaoh. This is all about God. And he's standing before the most powerful man in the world and he's giving all the glory and all the praise to God. It's been said, if you kneel before the Lord, you can stand before anyone. If you kneel before the Lord, you can stand before anyone. And he stands before the king and gives all the glory to God. And that's Joseph's story, a crazy 13 years from pit to Potiphar's house to prison to palace. And he's just 30 30 years old by this point. But what struck me, there's no bitterness. There's no complaining. Just this constant trust in the presence of God in each and every circumstance of life. And that's why he's faithful. That's why he's loyal. That's why he's a man of integrity, because God was with him. It's like Joseph saw God's hand in the most obscure, minute details of life. And you've got to open your eyes to that, friends. See God's presence in his most bizarre circumstances. Times of injustice, God's there. Times of humiliation, God's still there. Times of prosperity, God's still there. Now, here's the problem. It's easy to read these chapters and say, be a Joseph, go and be like Joseph, go and act like Joseph did. And and there is some truth in that. Out of all the patriarchs, he's by far the most godly. But you are not called to be like Joseph. You're called to be like Jesus, aren't you? Because Joseph, in many ways, is the forerunner to Jesus. I don't know whether you spotted that. Like Joseph... Jesus was uniquely loved by his father. Like Joseph, Jesus was maliciously hated by his brothers who shouted, crucify him. Like Joseph, Jesus was unjustly sold for a few pieces of silver. Like Joseph, Jesus was falsely accused for crimes he did not commit. Like Joseph, Jesus was providentially placed between two criminals, not not a cupbearer and a baker, but two known criminals. One died and one lived. Like Joseph, Jesus was placed in authority, not over a nation, but over the entire world. Like Joseph, Jesus was seemingly dead, dead to Jacob, dead to his father. And like Joseph, everyone will bow the knee humbly to Jesus, whether you like it or not. And that's why in Matthew chapter 1, when they name him Jesus, they say this, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us and so the question from these chapters is not so much how much do you look like Joseph but how much do you look like Jesus when people look at you and the way that you handle disappointments and despair and trials do they see Jesus in you when people look at you and the way that you you see adversity do they see Jesus in you the way you handle injustice and betrayals do they see Jesus in you Because Jesus is the one who said to you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. One of my favorite songs last year was a song, Another One in the Fire. 
another one in the fire standing next to me. It just reminds me that whatever I go through, I am never, ever, ever alone. Stuff happens. Stuff will happen to your life that you do not like and you do not understand, but God is always there. Times of despair, he's there. Times of sadness, he's there. Times of pleasure, he's still there. Times of temptation, Jesus sees. And so I'll leave you this question. Do, do you allow the, the ups and downs of life, the, the pits and the palaces of life, the trials of life, to, to make you more like Jesus, to draw you closer to Jesus? Or do you just get bitter and resentful and angry and frustrated? Or do you say, God, I don't understand this, but hey, show me. I know you're here with me. Show me. As Craig Rochelle says, never let the presence of a storm cause you to doubt the presence of God. Never let the presence of whatever's happening in your life right now cause you to doubt that God is with you and that God is for you. So there's truth again. God is with you, yes. God is for you, not against you. That is true. God never leaves you nor forsakes you. That is true. And God is good, yes, all the time. Let me pray. Father, thank you for reminding us of your presence with us. Father, we acknowledge there are things that happen which we just don't understand and we don't like. But show us how you are there with us in the fire. Show us, Lord, what you're doing and how you're refining us. Help us, Lord, to respond to these situations in ways that are godly and full of integrity and full of faithfulness and loyalty and uprightness. Show us, Lord, please, that you're always with us. You're always faithful. And you're always for us and not against us.